ladies, sorry for throwing in uncles in there. Complete accident. Forgive me. The Lord knows my heart. Um, we uh, we finished last uh, we finished last week. We didn't finish at all last week. Actually, we got halfway through where I expected us to get through. Um, did not expect to come to the to the to this week and still be on the story of Gideon, finishing up the story of Gideon. And uh, but here we are. Uh, we wanted to get through chapter seven and eight, and uh, Kirsty read for us last week chapter seven. I read chapter eight, and uh, with the anticipation of getting right through, actually to, to chapter ten, naively thought I could get that far. And uh, and she's been really, you're really good, you're really patient with me, because I'm still learning, I'm still, I'm still understanding what it is when. To, to, be, to be standing here and to talk and to communicate everything that's put down in my notes. I want to get through all my notes. God, I've, I feel like I've worked hard to get four pages of notes and I have to get through them. And there's just been times over the last couple of weeks, especially it's, it's felt like the Holy Spirit, for, in, for me anyway, has just put his finger on something and, and I felt like I've just wanted to pursue that a wee bit, which has meant that, uh, which has meant that it's taken us a wee bit longer to get through the story of Gideon, um, but I hope that I hope that I get it right. I'm not always going to get it right. Still learning what it is to hear from Him, be in be in tune with Him while communicating the heart of God through His through His Word. So, uh, so let me read, if it's okay, uh, Judges nine. So just so that you know, I want to, there's two or three things that I'd love to go back to Judges 8 and pick up a couple of things that we missed out on last week. There's some stuff that we are able just, that's, we missed that last week. We'll maybe pick it up another time, but there's, two, there's a couple of things that I'd love just to go back to Judges 8. We missed just last week. And uh, finishing off, I suppose, the story of Gideon. In fact, it's probably not really finishing off Gideon's story because his legacy lives on. Unfortunately, his legacy lives on in, the, in his son Abimelech. And it's Abimelech that I want to read about uh, in, these, in, our, in our reading this morning. Uh, Judges chapter 9. I'm going to try and get to... 10, verse 5, verse 5, yeah. Abimelech, son of Jeroboam. It's long, isn't it, Nev? <laughs> Abimelech, son of Jeroboam, who is Gideon, went to his mother's brother, brothers in Shechem, and to them and to all his mother's clan. Ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you to have all 70 of Jeroboam's sons rule over you or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. They gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal-Bereth, and Abimelech used it to hire reckless adventurers who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Ophrah and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jeroboam. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. 
When Jotham was told about this, he climbed up on top of Mount Gerizim and shouted to them, Listen to me, citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, Be our king. But the olive tree answered, Should I give up my oil, by which both gods and men are honored to hold sway over the trees? Next the tree said to the fig tree, Come and be our king. But the fig tree replied, Should I give up my fruit so good and sweet to hold sway over the trees? Then the tree said to the vine, Come and be our king. Then the vine answered, Should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and men to hold sway over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the thornbush, Come and be our king. The thornbush said to the trees, If you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thornbush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Now, if you have acted honorably and in good faith when you made Abimelech king, and if you have been fair to Jeroboam and his family, and if you have treated him as he deserves, and to think that my father fought for you, risked his life, life to rescue you from the hand of Midian, if then you have acted honorably and in good faith towards Jeroboam and his family today, may Abimelech be your joy and may you be his too. But if you have not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from you citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham fled, escaping to Beer, and he lived there because he was afraid of his brother Abimelech. After Abimelech had governed Israel for three years, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem, who acted treacherously against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Jeroboam's 70 sons and the shedding of their blood might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem, who had helped him murder his brothers. In opposition to him, these citizens of Shechem set men on the hilltops to ambush and rob everyone who passed by, and this was reported to Abimelech. Now Gal, son of Ebed, moved with his brothers into Shechem, and its citizens put their confidence in him. After they had done, gone into the fields and gathered the grapes and trodden them, they held a festival in the temple of their god. While they were eating and drinking, they cursed Abimelech. Then Gal, son of Ebed, Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech, and who is Shechem, that we would be subject to him? Isn't he Jeroboam's son? And isn't Zebel, Zebel his deputy? Serve the men of Hamor, Shechem's father. Why should we serve Abimelech? If only this people were under my command, then I would get rid of them. I would say to Abimelech, call out your whole army. When Zebel, the governor of the city, heard what Gal, son of Ebed, said, he was very angry. And under cover, he sent messengers to Abimelech, saying, Gal, son of Ebed, and his brothers have come to Shechem, and Shechem are stirring up the city against you. Now then, during the night, you and your men should come and lie in wait in the fields. In the morning at sunrise, advance against the city. When Gal and his men come out against you, do whatever your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all his troops set out by night and took up concealed positions near Shechem in four companies. Now Gal, son of Ebed, has gone out and was standing at the entrance to the city gate just as Abimelech and his soldiers came out from their hiding place. And when Gal saw them, he said to Zebel, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. And he replied, You mistake the shadows of the mountains for men. But Gal spoke up again, look, people are coming down from the center of the land and a company is coming from the direction of the soothsayer's tree. Then Zebel said to him, where is your big talk now, you who said, who is Abimelech that we should be, should be subject to him? Aren't these men you ridiculed? Aren't these the men you ridiculed? Go out and fight them. So Gal led out the citizens and fought Abimelech. Abimelech chased them and many fell wounded in the flight, all the way to the entrance to the gate. Abimelech stayed in a room and Zebel drove Gal and his brothers out of 
Shechem. I think you're getting the idea. Let me go down to verse 50. Next, Abimelech went to Thebes and besieged it and captured it. Inside the city, whoever was a strong tower to which all the men and women, all the people of the city fled. They locked themselves in and climbed up in the tower roof. Abimelech went to the tower and stormed it. But as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it in fire, the woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. Hurriedly, he called to his armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me so that they can't say a woman killed him. So his servant ran, th- ran him through and he died. When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his seven, 70 brothers. God also made the men of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. And the curse that Jotham had spoke came on them. And let me read these few verses and start at chapter 10. After the time of Abimelech, a man of Issachar, Tola, son of Pua, the son of Dodo, rose to save Israel. He lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. He led Israel for 23 years and he died and was buried in Shamir. He was followed by Jerg of Gilead, who led Israel for 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. They controlled 30 towns in Gilead, which to this day are called Havoth Jer. When Jer died, he was buried in Camon. We're not going to spend much time looking into the things that took place in Judges chapter 9. I wanted to read it because we're wanting to follow through with the whole story. We're wanting to engage with the whole narrative. But we also want to read it to see how, how far how far the, the Israelites have fallen, how far the people of God have, have turned away. And so if you go back, if you want to keep your, your Bibles open in, the, in chapter 8, we're going to... We're going to just share a couple of things out of chapter 8. I want to finish off looking at at uh, a couple of things at the end of the reading that we've just read. And so last week, in, in, the, in, our, in our second week, looking at the, at the story of Gideon, looking at, this, looking at this fascinating character, this character that I frustratingly related to over and over again. I could identify myself too often with, with Gideon. And so last week we talked about in chapter 7 how his army was reduced. And God kept reducing the army down to 300 so that it would never be able to be said that they did it themselves. They reduced the army so that the Israelites would never be able to say we did it ourselves. And so we posed that question last, last week. Obviously we're, we're dealing with a completely different period of time, a, complete, a completely different uh, period in history, thousands of years ago, and, uh, and so things are different, but I still think there's the, the lessons that the Father was trying to teach his people then, that he still can, we can still go back to the story of Gideon and see what, what is it that we can still learn even today, and so we are, we're asking the question, what, what, what do you need to reduce, what do you need to lay aside, what mindset do you need to get rid of so that you can never be able to say that you did it yourself. That when you get to the end of your life, it, you can say it was all grace. It was all because of his mercy. It was all because of his favor, because of his affection, because of his goodness. We'll never be able to say that we did it for ourselves. And we talked in verse 21 of chapter 7 of, of, uh, of 
these men that were, that were left, these men that had went out and defeated the enemy, they had stood firm. They'd be able to hold their positions. We wanted to know how well are you holding your position. Those that will stand firm, those that will hold their positions, are those that typically are not afraid and that are paying attention. And that's how they, that's how they reduce the army down. If anybody's afraid, because fear is contagious, we're going to ask that you go home. And those that are left, we're going to test you. And those that were attentive, those that remained attentive to what was going on around them, they were the ones that were brought brought through and th- through this army of 300 they, with the most unlikely of weapons. We don't fight the same way as the world fights. They were with a, an empty jar and a torch and a trumpet. They defeated the enemy and they had stood firm. And then we finished off last week by just saying, is there anybody that needs some reassurance? Because over and over again, we, we have the experience of just knowing that he's with us, knowing that he's for us. But he's that good, he's that gracious towards us that he'll say, if you're still afraid, come here. I want to speak words of assurance to you. Step out from your church bubble. Step out from the four, your four walls of comfort and come here. Step into the enemy's camp is what Gideon had to do. We got a word of reassurance, and we, we wanted to ask that question last week. Do you need some reassurance? It might ta- mean taking a risk, but he longs just to keep on reassuring. He longs just to keep on sharing his heart with you over and over again. So, chapter eight, chapter eight, we are introduced to uh, we're introduced to the, one of the tribes of Israel, Ephraim, the Ephraimites, and a few verses later, we're introduced to the officials of Sukkoth. I probably made a hash of these names all all through this series. You forgive me. But um the Ephraimites Gideon has Gideon has has defeated that which was oppressing. The the oppression that the Midian the Midianites had put on the on the people of God and the on the Israelites was, was intense. And um and so Gideon has won. Gideon has is victorious and he comes out of battle and he's he's comes alongside he is victorious he's still pursuing he's still pursuing others that are that are that are fleeing that are running away but he's got the upper hand he's taking the ground and he comes across the Ephraimites and the thing about the Ephraimites is that they were the, the, the they were the biggest tribe they certainly they certainly thought they were the biggest tribe See, the Ephraimites had an, uh, they had an inflated estimation of their own significance. And so it's why they come to Gideon and say, why, why would you go without us? How could you go in the battle and not need us? Don't you know who we are? Don't you know we're the most significant tribe in all of Israel? They couldn't believe that they weren't called out earlier. But the, thing about, the thing about the Ephraimites, and we'll say it again in chapter 12, this this inflated estimation of their own significance meant they were they were only interested in recognition. They weren't interested in the in the, in the people of God. They weren't interested in the wider body. They were just interested in their own recognition. The thing with Gideon does Gideon. It's either we others can say that Gideon was afraid or he was clever, because he appeased them by appealing to their ego. He appeals to their ego and they settle down and, and Gideon can move on 
But here, um, but here, there's, there's just some things in these two. These two. I was I was so tempted to move on and, and keep getting through this story, but there was something kept drawing me back to the Ephraimites and the men of Sukkoth. As I thought about, as I thought about, do we still see that same attitude today? Maybe, maybe not. Hopefully not in this church. But I, but I, as a as a as a church leader, I often. I shouldn't say often, but there is times where I face this attitude. An attitude where people, bigger churches, bigger churches, and they, and I know they're, they're, they're well-meaning. I hope they are. But too often, we, for some reason, we end up with an, an, they end up with an inflated sense, an inflated estimation of their own significance. And they can't believe that a little church can keep going on without their help. I mean, how big's your church? 40, 40 or 50 people. We love Jesus and we're pursuing him wholeheartedly. We're longing for all of our people just to be released into all that God's called them to do. And, and they can't seem to understand, well, why would, you not, why would you not want us to come and help you out? We've got, we've got all the resources. We've got all the numbers. Surely you, surely you can't. Surely you can't do it without us. And somehow it's sneaked into the, the bigger churches, the, the, the increase of people, of bums and seats, seem to increase their, their own estimation of their own significance. And too often, too often I see it, and too often I find it really ugly. An arrogance, an arrogance within the people. And it's because I've have been caught up in this story, and you don't have to go too far back to Joshua. You go back to, to Moses and to Joshua, and they just gathered the whole people. They gathered everybody together. Everybody was in this together. Every tribe was fighting for the sake of, the, of them all. Every tribe was fighting for the sake of the twelve. We're all fighting for the people of God. They were in this together. Nobody of more significance than the other. But here, this is when it starts getting ugly. Because it's become, it, it looks like it's no longer it's no longer the enemy, it's no longer the enemy from outside that is that is the issue. Here we see even in victory, Israel remains her own worst enemy. Even in victory, Israel remains her own worst enemy, and we begin to see the sense of of divide. We see it in some ways; it's it's almost equally as ugly. When we get to the officials at Sukkoth, so the Ephraimites they they couldn't believe that they weren't called for earlier. They couldn't believe that stuff would happen without them. We get a few verses later. We're introduced to these other guys, and they would rather that they weren't asked for help until victory had been accomplished. They 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 were asked them. Gideon and the men that, is, that he's gathered around him, they're worn out. They're still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna. And they're worn out and they're wanting some bread. They're wanting some energy. And they come to their own people and thinking that they would get some help. And their question is, well, have you got, have you got them? Have you defeated them? Have you got them in your hands yet? Well, if you, if you don't, you're not getting any help from us. Come back when you've achieved victory and we'll maybe give you some help. 
but you haven't won the victory yet, so we're not, we're not offering, we're not giving you anything. We're, they were decide to remain idle. And too often, we see this idleness in the church. We see an inflation of our own significance on one side, and on the other side, we see an idleness that some won't get involved until the sacrifice has been made. Some refuse to get involved until the price has already been paid. And it's an idleness that must grieve the Lord. It's an idleness that must grieve him because it's an attitude. There's an attitude in those who will involve themselves after something has been established. We see it today. I pray that it's not in this it's not among us. Potentially it is. Because we're human. We're, we're, we're battling with the flesh all the time. And there's this temptation. There's that, this temptation to allow everybody else to pay the price. To do the hard yards. To establish something new. To build a relationship. To just keep on on showing up. And so there's people, and we'll, we'll, we won't be in general. There's people that will not give up their Friday nights. Because, because it's not at the stage where something has been established, and, and I'll show up when it's been established. I'll show up when the sacrifice has already been made, and we're seeing some results. We're seeing some fruit. We're seeing some victory. But until then, I'm remaining on the sidelines. Until then, I am I'm doing nothing. I'm going nowhere until you prove to me that it's been established until you prove to me that it's going to work, until you prove to me that, that it's going in the right direction. And so we'll not pay the price. We'll not give up our, our Friday nights. We'll not give up our Tuesday nights. We'll not give up whatever because we're waiting to see it established. We're waiting to see victory already achieved. And so I think there's, there's the two attitudes in the Ephraimites and in the officials of Sukkoth that I wanted to point out because it's a wrestle that I sent. I, I know it's in me. I know that these things are in me, and I wrestle with them. And I want to, and I want to err them so that we are not ignorant to them. That we can wrestle with these things, wrestle with these things too. We keep on keep on following the story of Gideon. It gets to verse nineteen, and this is the question I find myself asking. Last week, but still asking myself this week as I refresh uh, the story for this Sunday. From verse 7, the whole thing just seems to have got very dark. We get to, we get to the, the moment that Gideon has captured these two kings. And he asks them, what kind of man did you kill? And they answered, men like you. And Gideon replies, we get an insight. The narrator tells us something that we didn't know before. Gideon replies, those were my brothers that you killed. Those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. And I've just been asking over and over as I keep reading, keep reading chapter 8. Verse 19. What had happened to Gideon? 
because he was, he was following the divine agenda. He was following the call that God had placed in his life. And where did it change? What happened? Because now it seems that it's changed from being a, from being a divine agenda to his own agenda. It now seems that it's his own agenda. Something has happened. Something has happened in Gideon from now to keeping on pursuing the call that God has placed in his life to making this all about himself. And it becomes, he becomes consumed with personal vengeance. He's consumed with personal vengeance. And this is an ugly scene. This is an ugly scene. Because he tries to get his young boy, he tries to get his son. The reckon was just a kid to shame these two kings. He, he tries to force his little boy to take the lives of these two men. Well, wee boy refuses to do it. He refuses to do it. And, and, and Zeba and Zalmuna, they, they goad. They start to mock Gideon that he doesn't have the strength to do it himself. And so he steps forward. And he kills them and he takes the ornaments off their camels neck off their camels' necks. He's become consumed with his own agenda. And it never it's never going to be that extreme for us, I'm sure. But how often we can be distracted with the call of God in our lives and we get involved and we obey and we begin to pursue and we begin to sense a bit of success. We begin to begin to sense a bit of favor and all of a sudden it can turn from being his divine call on our lives to our own agenda. We can become consumed with our own personal motives, our own personal thing. Gideon was consumed with personal vengeance and then he became trapped with personal ambition. He became trapped with personal ambition. Straight after this this story, in verse 22 of chapter 8, the Israelites, the people, begin to say, Gideon, you're the man. You're the man, Gideon. Rule over us. You and your son and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. They're longing that he would take the place of king. And he's got caught up in this. Gideon has got caught up in this, and he becomes trapped by his own personal ambition. He says the right words. He says in verse 23, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. He will be your king. And this is, he's saying the right things. But everything he does from here on is, shows the opposite. He gets, he receives all the gold. He gets all the purple garments that were worn by the kings of Midian. He gets, the, he, 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 he gets them to build, to create an ephod, something that, that was used only, uh, only at the temple, only at the place of God to decide his will, decide what he wanted to do, that would hear his heart, that would connect with his heart. Everything he does shows, shows the opposite. And can I say this really honestly? say it in and it doesn't just have to be leaders it can happen to any one of us but those that that are engaged in leadership in the kingdom of God 
And that can be any of us. Never talk about leadership. There's many of us lead. Leading doesn't mean standing up here at the front or leading the song or doing the announcements or standing here preaching. There's, leadership is more than that. But in my context, I, I can see that those who are engaged in leadership in the kingdom of God face that constant temptation. Face the constant temptation to, engage, to exchange to exchange God's agenda for our own personal agenda, our own personal ambition. want a bigger church we want bigger influence we want more money we want more resources and it's the constant temptation it's the constant temptation to exchange his call God's call his kingdom agenda and exchange it for our own personal ambition I love that Paul keeps on checking us in that throughout his letters especially in Philippians chapter 2 don't be so conceited. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. And I'm so glad, I'm so grateful for Paul that he keeps pulling me back to that place. Keep on looking up. Come on, my soul, look up, look up. Look to Jesus, fix your eyes on him. Have the attitude that is, that is yours in Jesus. In humility, counted everybody else more significant than themselves, than himself. Counted everyone, everything more significant than himself. He is a wonderful savior. And uh, I'm so grateful for Jesus. I'm so grateful for the times that I get consumed that I'm. Oh God, I'm looking. I identify too much like Gideon. And Paul reminds me, brings me back, and says, "Remember, you have the attitude, you have the mind of Jesus. Think like Him. Count others more significant than yourself. Don't be consumed with your own personal agenda. Be consumed with His. And His was to take on the form of a servant, take on the nature of a servant, emptied Himself, gave Himself." So I'll keep on looking up. Come on, my soul. Look up. Look up. And Gideon is we he he asks for the he asks for the earrings. He asks for the gold earrings and uh, not this is of any huge significance, but if you remember back in Exodus thirty two you've you've seen the gold the gold earrings in play before. When all of the all of God's people have been rescued, set free, and uh, they come to Aaron because Moses has taken too long. They give him a load of all their gold, anything they can get, all their gold earrings, and, and say, make something for us that we can worship. And we have the incident of the golden calf. The earrings that are end up being used for idolatry, and that's what Gideon has done. Gideon has he's made himself rich. rich. He's placed the, the ephod in his, in his hometown. It's a public trophy. And he's made it all about himself. He's made himself rich. They reckon that, that in today's 
the 1700 shekels if you're trying to convert that to today i don't know how to do it but to try to, to convert it to the to the, the two today <sighs> they reckon it's about 750,000 pounds three quarters of a million pound so Gideon's saying all the right things. Oh, I'm not going to be the king over you, but he's, he's gathering in all the stuff, all the money, all the, all the favor, the trophy, and, and the story has come full circle. And it, it is so painful to read that Gideon, called by God over and over again affirmed, over and over again assured, and even though it was the, probably one of the most difficult things he had to do along the journey was to go into his dad's back garden and chop down the thing that they had been given their lives to. They'd worshipped the Baal. They'd, worship, they'd, they'd given themselves to that. And he went and he cut it down. He sacrificed it. He drew a line in the sand and said, no more. No more. That's why they called him Jared Baal because he was the one that was willing to contend. He was the one that was willing to put a stop to it. And so we get... A few verses, a couple of chapters later, not sure of the time frame, and here we see back in the hometown, back in the place of his dad, he has set up the ephod, and everyone then has to come to him. He has created an alternative place to worship. He has to create, create an alternative place for the people of God to come. He's got to this place that he's, he just wants to, he's a leader that just wants to be needed. A leader that needs to be needed. And that's not an attractive thing. Leaders are supposed to be the ones that do themselves out of a job. That should be that should be that should be my greatest joy. To equip the saints, to keep on calling out the giftings and the destiny in them, that that that, that you end up doing yourself out of a job because there's people just keeping on following through. But Gideon had missed that. He he was a leader that just needed to be needed. He wanted everybody to come to him for advice, to come to him for counsel, and uh, and it just turns. It just is not pleasant. And so, a, a guy that we that we know well has wrote a wonderful book. I really recommend it. God is stranger. And this is what he says in the in the middle of his book. God was willing to use Gideon, despite his low opinion of himself and his family. God was willing to be patient with Gideon, despite all doubt and questioning. God was willing to use Gideon to lead Israel to a famous victory, despite his bid for personal recognition. Yet Gideon, recipient of all of this favor and face-to-face encounter with God, ends up leading the nation into idolatry. And so part of, part of going through this, that, that, that was, that was, those were the questions that I was asking the Lord when I really felt over and over that he was, he was leading us to go through this book, to go through this series. And uh, God, God, it's just a downward spiral. How... How can we keep going in the book of Judges when it's just, it's just a constant downward spiral? And I just felt for me anyway, personally, there's the, as, as, this, as the spiral just continues to, to go down and down, it almost makes the, the learning that much more significant for me. I don't want to fall into the same trap. I don't want to make the same mistake. I want to, I want to make sure that I'm in this upward spiral that we see in the book of Acts. I want to make sure that that's what I'm engaged in. But I want to wrestle with the things, that, the mistakes that were made. I want to wrestle with the things that they didn't learn, that they missed out on. And it's insane in the downward spiral that those things become more clear. 
And so we get to the end of chapter 8 and we have, we have the land enjoyed peace for 40 years. I, I, I think it doesn't say it, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a compromised peace. It's a peace that has been compromised. It's a peace that has, there's just something not right still something not right and we get on to verse 33 and and we read that Jeroboam his concubine bore him a son and named him Abimelech and Abimelech becomes as we've already read this morning he becomes the legacy of this downward spiral and that's why we've talked we talked about it the first couple of weeks and we want to keep it on keep on saying and challenging you uh, no matter who you are because each one of us have a sphere of influence. And so we can, we can easily say it's for mums and dads, for parents and grandparents, but it's for all of us because we all have a sphere of influence. And we've tried to encourage you that you would live what you want to see replicated. That you would live what you want to see replicated. And that's the lesson that we want to learn throughout this because it's a, it's a lesson that Gideon completely ignored. He completely dismissed this lesson and Ab- Abimelech he lives what he has seen. He lives the, the lifestyle that he, is, that he has seen. And so he wants all the fame. He wants all the glory. He wants all the attention for himself. And it's why he's not willing to compete with his 70 brothers. He's going he's to take it all for himself. Much the same way that his dad began to do. He's going to take it all for himself. He's sharing, the, he's sharing the glory with no one. He gets rid of all. 70 brothers in one go and, and it just becomes a the story I feel like I've said it all morning forgive me it just becomes an ugly an ugly account of what happens when we walk away from his agenda when we be consumed with personal ambition we become trapped with our own personal agenda we become consumed with our own personal motives this is what begins to happen and in verse 56, Abimelech dies. And this is, I want to wrap it up with a few things, a couple of things in chapter 10. We're introduced briefly to these two judges, Tola and Jer. And so in the story of Gideon, in chapter 6, we, we were asking the question, which I found myself being really attentive to. Because there was a, there was a, a familiar cycle. The judges get into a familiar cycle. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord and there was an, an enemy came and oppressed them. And so they raised up a voice. They raised up a cry to the Lord and the Lord sent them a judge. And the judge rescued them and they had peace. But then the cycle continues. But in Gideon's story, we find that whenever the cry ra- was raised and the Lord responded, he sent them a prophet. He sent them a prophet, a father so longing for repentance, so longing for renewal. Him sending a prophet was such an act of grace, was such an, uh, an expression of his love. And here I'm asking myself the same question. What's different? What's different as we approach this cycle? Abimelech has died and, and there's something different. There's something different here. Israel, we don't see anything. We don't read of Israel crying out. We don't read of an enemy. There is no enemy that comes to oppress. And Israel does not cry out. And is there something that we can take from that? Is there something that we can learn from that? Or is that just an anomaly that we, that we just read on past? 
See, I think there's no enemy because Israel needs saved from themselves. They need delivered from themselves. They've got, they're so turned against each other. They're so turned away from the, from the call that God had given to Moses and to Joshua. Go and take the land. Take the land. Be fruitful and multiply. And then all the nations are going to watch. They're going to look on and they're going to be attracted to this. They're going to know who I am as you live out the calling and the destiny that I have placed on you. And they've walked so far away from that. And so it's in moments like these that his, that his grace is once again on, 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 on display. His grace is on display here. Because even though they don't cry out, and even though there has been years and years of faithful, faithlessness, God is prepared to raise up a tola. God is prepared to raise up a jar to give space, to provide space for repentance, to provide space and the time for renewal. And even when they don't cry out. That's what we said at the start. His grace is so relentless that even when it's not deserved and even when it's not asked for, he, he keeps, he's so committed to his people. He's so committed to his promises that he is gonna, he's going to raise up a tola. He's going to raise up a judge even when they're not crying out. Even when there's no enemy oppressing them, he's going to raise them up. He's going to raise one up. He's so longing to give space for repentance. He's so longing for them to come to a place of renewal. His love is unfailing. His grace is relentless. And I, and I, I hope you don't get sick of it, but I hope you hear it over and over again. His grace is relentless. His love is unfailing. His commitment to his people knows no boundaries. It knows no end. We, we sit with that, that same thing today. One who is relentlessly gracious. One whose love for you is unfailing. It is incomparable, the love that he has for each one of you. And his commitment to you and to your destiny and to the purposes and the plans that he has for you. It knows no bounds. It knows no limits. He is a good, good father. And we're loved by him. We're loved by him. And so I, 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 wanted to, I wanted to read so much of Abimelech's story almost just to say he refuses. He refuses to allow Abimelech to be the last word for his people. He refuses to allow Abimelech to be the last word for his people. And the, so the greatest obstacle, I'm, I'm finished. The guys want to come and just finish off with the song. The greatest obstacle, the greatest op- obstacle to the work of God among us, the greatest obstacle to the work of God in his world, in this world, is the faithlessness of his people. That sounds really harsh. I don't want it to sound harsh. I want you to catch the reality of it. The greatest obstacle is our faithlessness. The greatest obstacle is forgetting who it is that it goes with us, who it is that sends us. It's the greatest obstacle. Our faithlessness, our, our, our failure to remember. But he's that gracious. He's that full of compassion and love. He refuses, even though it seems that's what they want. We want to go our own way. We want to do our own thing. And he refuses to allow Abimelech to be the last word. And so even when they don't ask for it, even when there's nothing oppressing or attacking, he comes and says, guys, come on. 
need to rescue from yourselves. You need to come align, in a line again with the call that I have over you. And he does the same for us this morning. He's longing to teach us the same thing this morning. So, Father, bless your name. We worship and adore you. You're so good. We love you. We want to catch your heart. We want to catch what you long to teach this morning. And so anything that's of me, anything that's of me, please, Lord, let it, in your graciousness, God, let it fall. Let it fall. Let it be forgotten. But the things that are of you, God, that would be received and they would be engaged with, they would be wrestled with so that we can continue to conform into your image, into your likeness. In Jesus' name, amen.